This is the Do Better Podcast with Dr. Megan Miller and Joe Smith, launching you into the future of behavior analysis. definitions of how life is going right now (laughs) (laughs) that's true i mean we do have i mean it is a very interesting time and everyone's opinion on how i mean their themselves are doing would be very different depending on your circumstance um so yeah it's been a whirlwind hasn't it for the past couple weeks yep so, <laughs> so how are you holding up? I'm, I mean, pretty much, well, it's interesting because I basically just cut back. I had a lot of projects planned for the spring. I had changed a lot about my job for this year. So I have this long, different list of things that I was going to be working on with not traveling so much. And I cut back having, you know, clients and things where I would need to have meetings. So that worked out well in terms of my son being home because basically I'm with him all day while my husband's working. And then from like three to five each day, I'm trying to get some work done. So from a like, you know, feeling as if I'm a chicken with my head cut off and like scrambling, trying to work and take care of a child, I don't have that but work is very reinforcing to me. So I'm (laughs) losing a huge reinforcer. Granted, you know, obviously spending time with my child is reinforcing too, but I'm just one of those people where work is even more reinforcing most of the time. So I'm missing out on, you know, doing those things. And I I think it's hit me the last few weeks, like not having access to that, but at least I'm not like overly stressed too. So there's a trade-off. Yeah. What about you? I'm I'm doing all right. I mean, it's been it's been a roller coaster. It's been of emotions, just like up and down, and you know, just dealing with certain things. So um, it's been great because I'm home and I can spend more time with uh, my dog Blue and um, get things done around the house. Um, but I feel like I'm even busier than I was before. Yeah. But I think the problem the the problem that I'm having right now is I'm I'm having a whole list of like honey to do's. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so I get done with one one thing that I want to get done, or my wife asked me to get done, and then of course she reinforces. At, at, I mean, at the end of that chore, she's like, "Oh, great job, honey! I'm lo- I love how you're." doing your work and get it done and then she gives me something else to do and of course I'm going to do it again because I like that phrase um from her but um well yeah it's uh I just feel like I'm never stopping now yeah however what's interesting is my act even though I feel like I'm busier my activity level from all the metrics that I, I track has gone down 
and I'm noticing like, you know, my weight are, is increasing, but my, the number of steps I do each day is decreasing. Uh, but I feel like I have done more exercise, like actual like workouts at home than I have in the past like year. Yeah, kind of highlights how much more you move around when you're in the classroom or in people's homes or clinics or whatever. I feel like I'm moving more because before all of this, my you know job was basically sitting at a computer all day while my son was at daycare and my husband was at work. And now <laughs> since I'm not doing that all day, I'm kind of the opposite. I'm chasing him around and like going up and down a lot of stairs and all around the yard <laughs> and everything. And when I used to be sitting and not doing any movement. <laughs> so See, I'm still gaining weight though, because I'm eating plenty and drinking lots. <laughs> <laughs> well, at this time, I also truly believe in self-care and, you know, you know, it's okay to eat, you know, those foods that we really crave and we're allowed to partake in um, some adult beverages every now and then. But, uh, but yeah, it definitely affects, I noticed as it definitely affected me, um, with my weight as well. But that's something that I'm going to put in place. I'm going to create my own behavior intervention plan today after this podcast and actually create a plan on how I can um, work on certain goals, uh, I mean, certain behaviors and what I can do to um, decrease my weight, but also increase my activity. I so just had a nice really little... great idea. All right. What's your idea? We should do that as our next recording and share our plans. And whoever doesn't stick to their goals has to root for the other person's football team if we have football this season. Oh, oh. oh. <laughs> so like what, not the whole season, but like when Ohio State plays Penn State, if you don't meet your goals, you have to root for Ohio State. And if I don't meet my goals, I have to root for Penn State. But if we both meet our goals, we both get to root for our team. You're going down, Megan. I mean, <laughs> I'm just telling you right now. I'm rooting for Ohio State. Oh, okay. So for our listeners out there that do not know, um, anything about our, you know, colleges or what sports we like. We both are big college football fanatics. So I grew up in Pennsylvania, about 30 minutes outside of State College, where Penn State University is, um, the main campus is at. Um, so every Saturday since I could remember, um, everyone would be wearing blue and white. Everyone would be wear watching the games. Um, it's it was it's like football is like a routine or in a ritual up north however megan actually went to the ohio state university yeah and um that's her alma mater and that's where she, who she roots for um Man, I can't, I can't get over the idea of wearing an Ohio State, I mean, Ohio State. Well, it'll be shirt. really motivating then. So it will be really whenever motivating. We'll, we'll have time to plan it and like get, you know, our stuff together so we don't set goals that are unobtainable. And then when we record next, we'll share with our audience what our goals are um, and they can hold us accountable too. And then whoever, hopefully we both just meet our goals and then we can root for our own teams. But if one of us fails to meet our goals, then they have to root for the other team. All right, I'm down for this. I, I love this. All right. Okay, so and this here, was truly just we didn't even plan yeah, to talk about. No. 
<laughs> no. Uh, and it was funny is like every time um, Meg and I get together, we always talk about Ohio State and Penn State or um, our other teams, um, the oh, Pittsburgh yeah. Steelers or the Cleveland. I, I don't even know their name. They're that, that horrible. Come on, Joe. <laughs> Cleveland Browns. I mean, I know. But I mean. Yeah, if we need another one, we can do something with that too. If we yeah. have to reset some goals or something. That's awesome. All right, I'm down with that. Let's go. All right. Perfect. All right. All right. Should we dive into our actual topic for today? Yeah, let's dive into our topic to got uh, to guys today. <laughs> so our topic today is called the list. Um, and this is a list that we compiled of like different topics that we feel that a BCBA should know. Um, now, of course, like for me being a newly minted BCBA, um, still in the field, my list is going to be uh, quite shorter. I mean, short compared to um, Megan's, but that's okay because I have a lot of things to learn. Um, what What is your idea for today's um, topic? So, well, we our first question was, what is the list? And so for me, it's basically different intervention models based in behavior analysis, frameworks, resources, empirically supported interventions uh, that have created do better moments for me. And my list is quite long. So <laughs> we kind of took a turn in what our actual plans were for this train or this uh, podcast to talk about potentially just go through the list and talk about when those things were learned for each of us and why we think they're important and then resources if people want to learn more about that topic area. So I think that's what we agreed yeah, to do, yeah. right? Yep. So what's the first thing on our list? So the first thing on our list is first response data collection. So I try to go in chronological order from when I learned about certain things and I didn't include stuff on here, which I basically see across the board, no matter which training program people are in, they learn. So discrete trials or things like, you know, basics around reinforcement and prompting and all of that kind of stuff I didn't include in here. This is like stuff that was against the trends or the norm for that time. Uh, so th these are the do better <laughs> type things. So <laughs> For me, first response data collection was something I learned when I, before I even started in graduate school, when I had a couple of clients in Columbus. So it was in 2004 to 2005. And we had a family where the client wasn't responding as well to like your typical stuff. So somebody had gone to see, I think, Carbone present and they asked about if we could try to do first response data collection. Other people know it as cold probe. So that's mm -hmm. um, why that one's on there first for me. That's when I learned about it. Why I think it's important is it is a really good way if you're especially needing to get through a lot of targets in a session. It's a nice way to do a quick test of what the learner has acquired and what you actually mm -hmm. need to spend your time training and testing on. And it was like a big deviation from the trial by trial data collection that I had been doing at the time. And it's not solely I don't that's a whole separate podcast episode yeah. we could have I'm not saying solely do that but it's something you should learn about and have in your toolbox so when appropriate you can use it for different programs with your learners to kind of get through material more quickly 
I don't have any specific resources listed for this one that people could learn more, but that's the, the summary of first response for me. What about you, Joe? When did you learn about first response data collection or cold probe? So the first time I ever heard of first response um, data collection, um, we briefly touched about it when I touched on it whenever I was working uh, at, I mean, when I, while I was teaching at CSEP, um, like my first year. Um, and we touched on it a little bit. We didn't go into much detail, um, but we talked about that in our training and, you know, how to take data for it. It wasn't until I started working at navigation as a RBT that I actually used this with a client of mine. And it is a great way of collecting data very quickly when there is a lot, when we have had a lot of targets to go through just to see what he has acquired since my, our last session. Um, and it, and I've seen growth um, from that client of mine um, using uh, first response data. So that's the first time I have ever come in, came in contact with that skill. Yeah. Okay. Did you have a why on that? Is that like on your list too? And why would it be on there? Um, I would say the reason why it should be on there is because it's just another method and another um, thing that we can put in our toolbox um, to implement if we're not seeing progress with our clients. And I think that's a great um, technique to use to for newer BCBAs to, uh, or even just BCBAs in general to uh, gain data. Awesome. So the next item on my list is kind of broad. It's just being analytical. <laughs> so, so for that one, for me, I put down technically a little bit of that was in my early training before graduate school because I was able to have models of the different consultants that worked for the families that I served. They didn't have, you know, resources to pull from. They were doing a lot of their own analysis, but they also didn't have as firm of an understanding of the science because you didn't have to be have any specific training in behavior analysis to be a consultant. So really where that developed further for me was being at graduate school at Florida State because that's all they focused on there was just constantly, you know, how do you look at things through the lens of behavior analysis? And Steve Ward also just over time for me, I met him in 2010 and over knowing him for the past 10 years, he's a constant inspiration, even though I already have a lot of strengths in that area. <laughs> but he, <laughs> he also just he sees the world in such an analytical way and has a unique way of um, really pulling together from different sources within behavior analysis and also just teaching and learning. So that's been really helpful, too. So one of the resources for learning more about being analytical was the webinar that we did in January of 2018. It's on discrepancy analysis. And, it, and I have some resources and a blog I wrote on thinking like a behavior analyst. And I think mm -hmm. the, the, the why for this one is kind of obvious, like it's in our title. So if, you, yeah. if you're going to be called a behavior analyst, you should know how Thank to be you. analytical. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I think that was the first um, time I um, was kind of, I mean, I was trained or learned more about being analytical. 
um, by through your do better movement um, webinar. Yeah. For that. So that's the first time that I came across that as well. And I think, and again, like the, I think it's important because we are um, behavior analysts and we should think analytically and it's in our title. So um, <laughs> that's kind of a no brainer. So. All right. But, perfect. That's a nice fast one. Yeah. All right. The next one is the verbal behavior approach. This was another one as well that I started to dabble in before I started graduate school in 2004. I went to see mm -hmm. Dr. Carbone present and I uh, had a few clients where we were trying to incorporate some of the things that he was talking about. And then in grad school at Florida State, everything, I mean, we had to, obviously we read Skinner and we had, had to read verbal behavior. We did all of our programming based off the ABLES are at that time. And then right after graduate school, Dr. Mary Barbera's book came out, The Verbal Behavior Approach, and I read that. And the, in graduate school, I also read Teaching Language to Children with Autism and Other Developmental Disabilities by Sunberg and Partington. Mm -hmm. So all of those definitely helped influence you know, my understanding of everything relating mm -hmm. to verbal behavior. And the reason why I think it's important is it's important to have an understanding of the functions of language that could exist, but also mm -hmm. that piece on like focusing on motivation and both Mary's book and the teaching language to children with autism and other developmental disabilities have a lot of really great information on various procedures to use when you're trying to teach language. I, knowing what I know now, think some of it might not be broken down as far as we need, but it's still a good starting point. So it's definitely something I was happy that early on in my career, while I was still in graduate school, I was learning about and like getting experience with so that mm -hmm. when I developed programs and interventions, I would have that information to pull from. And so much of this is like so well ingrained in me. It's hard for me to go back and be like, oh, I learned this thing from that book and this thing from that book. So yeah. but the, the, especially the teaching language to children with autism and other developmental disabilities, that was published in like the late 90s. And I think a lot of people probably don't even read that one now. I think we talked about that in a other an earlier podcast episode. But those yeah. are some of the resources. And the, obviously, like the ABLES are and the VBMAP are good resources for understanding some of the skills you would look at when you're using a verbal behavior approach. Yeah. And I know um, I'm, this is one area that I'm still learning um, as a newly mentored BCBA just because um, just with my 11 years of teaching in the public school system, a lot of my kids, um, we focus a lot more on academic skills um, and didn't really went up. I mean, I didn't have students who um we really need to focus on those those verbal behaviors um but this is something that i'm still learning and still growing at this time but it's important because of the learners that we are working with now um to um to develop those skill sets yeah so but yeah and what's next demand the next, yeah, demand fading. So this is one that I learned about in graduate school. Again, I was really fortunate that Florida State <laughs> covered so many of the things. They definitely gave me a good ground-based framework to, to go off of. But 
So demand fading, we do have, I talked about that in the Do Better webinar in June of 2018, and I needed it very early on with my clients. I, even looking back when I was in graduate school and I thought about the clients I had in Ohio before I moved to Florida, I was like, oh, this would have been so good <laughs> to know about when <laughs> I was working with them. But it was something we incorporated right away with like every client at FSU when I was there. And then I've just always carried that through. We um, had practice writing our own demand feeding programs. And we also read a lot of the journal articles that were around at that time on it. And it's mm -hmm. just something that like is a critical component of effective intervention for me. So basically just to, some people don't necessarily know what it is, but basically the idea is like slowly building up the expectations and the amount of demands, but doing it in a really systematic way mm -hmm. based on the baseline performance of the learner. So sometimes it's like really, really small <laughs> what you're yeah. expecting of them. Yeah. And I think that's opposite from what a lot of people do. They try to just, oh, we'll pair for a little bit and hit the ground running and they don't take into account, you know, where the learner is and how ready they are for the expectations relating to the demands being presented. So for me, I just don't think you can provide effective intervention in any setting, whether you're training adults who are, you know, working at like a corporation yeah. <laughs> or you're working with early learners. I mean, it just runs the gamut. If you don't properly understand how to slowly increase your expectations and really like build that relationship, you're not going to get very far with people. Exactly. And just like, I mean, I agree with everything you said about the why. Um, for demand feeding, I started learning this back in um, when I was at Old Dominion University with um, this idea on how to write it into um, my programming. Um, and then we're starting to do this um, in, with my clients right now as well. Um, and also, we I learned a little bit about demand fading also from your webinar um, in 2018 as well. So, awesome! Yeah, <laughs> I'm glad you're learning so much from me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, any any time I can find a, I, I mean, any type of like uh, webinar that I can learn from, I'm trying to be proactive in um, learning from my my uh, my colleagues just because i feel like as a behavior analyst i mean i should be always learning i should always try to um do better and broaden my horizon and learn how to do different procedures and have this toolbox that's full of different things to um implement with my clients because um not every client is going to be the same type of client and not all the procedures that i've done in the past is going to work yeah so that's that's why and I'm, t and I'm a huge component for being a lifelong learner too yes that's that's good because that's what our podcast is focused on so yes it is <laughs> <laughs> all right so the next one is functional communication training this is another one that is so important on my list that I've done a webinar on it so that was also from June 2018 the links to all like when we have the show notes everything that i'm referencing i'm hoping to have links for you all so if you're hearing me mention or joe mention a resource you can look at the show notes and hopefully it'll be in there but functional mm -hmm. communication training again thankfully was something i learned about at florida state we had to practice writing up protocols and, uh, and applying them we had to read articles where 
it wasn't just the idea of, oh, in functional communication training, you develop a replacement response and, you know, teach them that functional communication, but it was like, how do you do it? And like, what, what level of training and trials and whatnot are needed to actually Mm -hmm. develop that response. And that was really helpful to make sure when I graduated, when I was needing to teach learners, you know, to request a break or request attention or request any other thing Mm -hmm. that I understood, it doesn't just magically happen. You you know, there's best practices around how to teach it. And we read all of that research as part of our graduate work. And I referenced quite a bit of that in the webinar as well. So for me, again, this is one of those critical components of the work that we do. If we can't, if we don't know how to properly train replacement responses that are functional and get people to, you know, access their reinforcers, then we're not going to get very far with our interventions. Exactly. And I mean, I started learning about um, functional communication and training in college um, while I was trying to get my um, coursework done. And I applied that right away to my my, uh, classroom because a lot of my kids have, um, ish, I mean, they would demand uh, certain items or tangible items uh, in the classroom, and but they do it in a way that's that's not um, that's necessary um, safe or um, necessary um, the best way of getting uh, attention. So. Um, by using functional communication training in my classroom, I've definitely seen a huge difference with my even my my uh, students in my classroom, and I just think it's huge to uh, use with your clients and also um, with any learners out there, just because um, because it's essential uh, to use and to develop that repertoire. Yeah. So next we have um, true functional analysis. Yep. So do you want to go first on this one? I'll let you. You're, you're, I see your smile. You, <laughs> you have a whole list going in your head. So. Okay. So for me, for this one, um, again, this was one that I learned at Florida State, thankfully, when, when we were doing our graduate studies, that was a focus in the program, you know, functional analysis is the manipulation of environmental variables to figure out why a behavior is happening. Mm-hmm. And that was well ingrained. We learned obviously about Awada and yeah. the traditional conditions and whatnot, but it was never like, this is the only way you do it. And we had a lot of practice opportunities, whether it was within the practicum experiences that we had or just hypothetical situations to yeah you know, apply what we were learning relating to that. I did a webinar for the Do Better Movement uh, that touches on this a little bit for the September 2018 one that I did on challenging behavior. And I think one of the best resources right now for really learning about functional analysis is Dr. Hanley's website, Mm -hmm. practicalfunctionalassessment.com. But again, I think for behavior analysts, we obviously need to understand how to properly look at why things are happening and knowing and really understanding the true process around functional analysis and not just looking at the conditions from OWADA is critical to being effective behavior analyst. So that's why I have it on the list. Yeah, it's huge. And then 
I mean, I learned about this while I was completing my coursework at ODU, and um, we have did, we set up some um, hypothetical um, situations. Um, I have never ran a f an actual FA in my class for like any one of my students in the classroom, um, just because I do um, engage in severe um, challenging behavior and aggression. So um, we, our program decided not to uh, have FAs done in our program. So, um, but the function analysis that Dr. Greg, um, Greg Hanley uh, presented to us, um, what was it? A year ago, two years ago? It was only a year. It seems yeah, so much longer. Yeah, I know. I, I mean, know. we did is we, we did one in January in Vir like Northern Virginia, and that still seems like forever ago too that I did that one. Yeah, seems like March just lingered for like five months or I something. <laughs> but yeah, so it was only a year ago, and that's where I, I gained a lot more information about how to do. I mean, of course, like in college, I mean in um, college, I learned about Iwata. But I really learned the other, I mean, uh, the PFA uh, method with Hanley. Yeah. So, and I think it's just um, crucial to, um, to learn just to make any headway with our clients who does engage in challenging behavior. Yeah. So the next one is behavioral economics. Yes. So, so you, yeah, for this one, especially because... Behavioral economics is a field in and of itself. <laughs> like, it's, like, it's not even necessarily, uh, some people may not even consider under the umbrella of applied behavior analysis. But again, at Florida State, we did read some articles on it. And then I it was just an area I was fortunate. Uh, they had at the autism conference in 2011, that was like just kind of a focus where they had a few different people present. And Dr. DeLeon, Willie DeLeon from, he's at UF was at UF, was up in Kennedy Krieger, now he's back at UF. He presented on some stuff and that even more like geeked me out. And then when I was at Ohio State, we also, in our translational research class, we talked a lot about behavioral economics again there. So for me, the two pieces that I think are really important for us to understand are breaking points and like values of reinforcers, because a lot of the times we don't take that into account and then matching law. So I could go into explanation, but we'd be here forever. I do talk about it in more detail and explain what those are in the Do Better webinar from October of 2018. But the reason why I think it's important is I think a lot of us, you know, well, all of us to be effective with our <laughs> learners need to understand how reinforcement works for them. And it's not technically as simple as just identifying preferred items and providing those contingent on responses we want to increase. So having at least an understanding of breaking points and matching law can really help improve how well you use reinforcement with your learners. Yeah. And then for me, this is an area that I'm still learning in. Um, I still, I mean, I learned about matching law in my, um, in my coursework, um, used it on the exam, but, um, as far as, um, really knowing the, you know, the depths of it, this is an area that I'm still learning from. So um, definitely on my, my list to do better and, and learn more about. Yeah, and I, I think I could as well. This is one, again, like I've had 
exposures to it, but I definitely don't know as much about it as I possibly could. And there's also quite a, not quite a few, but there's at least two episodes on the do better, do better on the behavioral observations podcast. So okay. I'll put those in the show notes too with Derek Reed, where he talks about behavioral economics. The most recent one was actually relating to COVID and just kind of looking at some of the explanations for people's behavior around that and looking at the research from behavioral economics. Uh, but I think if you're wanting to have a, a nice, easy way to learn more, that might be a good one too. So the next one is pivotal response. I, again, this was one that we learned a little bit about when I was in graduate school at Florida State in terms of learning about pivotal, understanding like pivotal skills. Obviously that's on the BACB task list, but we also learned about it from the, the framework of pivotal mm -hmm. response. This is one of those where I said like the list includes a bunch of different things. This would be what I consider one of the intervention models, just like the verbal behavior approach. Mm -hmm. So with this one, I think it's more, most important if you work with children diagnosed with autism, because that's what their research is based around. But they also provide a lot of good explanations on what just in general for development are some pivotal skills that people need to learn. So if you're working with any learners that have delays or even like traumatic brain injury or things like that, knowing what those pivotal skills would be so you can allocate your time appropriately and work on teaching those so you can get mm -hmm. other stuff for free would be important. <laughs> and they've done a lot of really great work. The Kegels have done a lot of great work on teaching in terms of how do you work as a team and support families and have like a bigger picture approach to things. So again, it's all their research is based around autism, but you can generalize that to other populations. So for me, I think they've just done a really good job, especially from like a layperson perspective of explaining uh, things that can make you in a more effective behavior analyst and mm -hmm. how to sort of prioritize and focus on certain skills to promote skill acquisition for your learners. And this is an area that, you know, newly minted BCBA is still, um, still growing. I mean, this is an area that I could do better in and learn more, more about too. Yeah. Um, I, I forgot to mention, I included uh, the Do Better webinar from April 2018. I highlight some of my favorite points from Pivotal Response. So if you're wanting kind of an overview, and then there's also some books that I read early on, you know, it was after I graduated, but it was about, I think around 2008, 2009. And then there was one that came out a little bit later. So I'll, there's a ton of books from the Kegels in that area. And there's a ton of research articles. So if you tried to go and read all of it, it'd take up a lot of time. <laughs> so I'll <laughs> include my favorites, but this is another one where I don't want people to feel overwhelmed. Like, I read just enough of it to be like, oh, I can do these things better. Mm -hmm. And then when I encounter situations where I'm not making progress, I might turn back and like get the books back out or try to find a new article by them because I know what types of things they focus on. So if I'm like, oh, I have a learner who's not doing very well with some imitation or pointing, and I know that's an area that the Kegels have focused on a lot, then I might go look for information from them first. So some of these things, like I know some people who got pivotal response, they went and did like the certification and they've spent hundreds of hours learning more about it. I don't want people to listen to this podcast and think for each of these things we're listing off that you would have to become an expert mm -hmm. in each of these. Like <laughs> I know just enough to have it improve what I do, but I, I don't have, you know, everything memorized from it or anything like that. Yeah. And that's important too, because like, 
there's a lot of stuff here that I'll, I'm looking at and like, man, I need to learn, learn more about this, 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 this. And I'm like, um, but then again, I remember like, you know, each one of us has needs to find their own niche or their own thing that they know, like 100%. They're the, they're really good at this one thing, but that's also why. So, I mean, that's why also, uh, we should also be collaborating with other BCBAs who might know something in a different field that's more, um, that's more knowledgeable. And that's yeah. where, that's where you should know your limitations and know, um, where to seek, seek for, um, seek out help. So like, I know for me, like I, I'm really good with, um, anything related to, um, instruction, instructional, um, I'm really good at, um, knowing, um, special education law, but I mean, I'm gaining in other skills as well. Right. Yep. Constantly learning. Yes. And I love that. I, <laughs> I love that. I'm never done. I still joke with my wife is like, Hey, I'm going to go back for my doctorate. She's like, um, really? <laughs> You've been in school for like 10 years now. I'm like, I know, but I'm thinking about it. It's definitely, we work in a field where even if you went back for your doctor, I saw someone post about this today too. Like you see it often where it's just never enough, right? Like being a behavior analyst gives you obviously a lot of information about how to change people's lives. But there's then you're like, well, I need to learn more from the counseling side of things. And I need to learn more from the social work side of things. Or I want to <laughs> learn, you know, there's so much you could learn about to make yeah. you even better at your job. So. Yeah. Luckily, I married someone who's going to work in the social work field. So I can like, basically like, you know, come home and be like, hey, honey, so I need to learn a little bit more about this. What can you tell me about this? Yeah, that's always so. good. <laughs> yeah, it's nice. It, it's nice that we're in separate fields, but you know, a lot of the things that we do kind of intertwine too. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, super excited about that. The but, next one is instructional motivation that also is called instructional control. But during our online conference, we had Vince Lamarca do a training. Well, not a training, but he did a presentation, Ignite presentation, and he, he referenced and said, called it instructional motivation. And I just love that so much. So I'm just going to keep <laughs> using that instead. So thanks, Vince. Uh, but this one uh, is basically referring to the idea of, you know, developing a strong teaching learning relationship with your clients and the people that you're working with. And we mm -hmm. did... For the Do Better movement, I touch on this in the Do Better webinar from April of 2018 and the Do Better webinar from September of 2018. And a lot of my presentations, it's almost impossible to watch me do a training of any sort without hearing me talk about this. But uh, this is something that, again, when I was in graduate school, there was some groundwork laid. And right after I graduated, too, I had some clients where they weren't responding to like the typical procedures that we had learned about and I felt confident and strong enough to modify things and had the support of my mentors at Florida State to mm -hmm. in doing that. And then after I moved away from Florida and moved to Virginia, I was fortunate to like immediately have a client and have contact with Robert Schramm. So the client had moved from Germany, but I had also simultaneously connected with Robert 
through a Yahoo group. So it was like <laughs> two separate Yahoo. things, but they were both, <laughs> you know, related. So they, f- from 2009, 2010, I've been, this has just been an area that I've dove into. And I, I'm constantly, when I go to conferences, even if the training has nothing to do with instructional motivation, I usually pick out things where I'm like, oh, that's similar to the seven steps or you know, this would help make my implementation of the seven steps better. (laughs) So I just like, oh, it's like an ongoing area of growth for me. But my initial exposure to it was back in really 2007. And then Mm -hmm. it's just grown since then. So, um, but I think it's important again, because if you don't understand how to set up a strong teaching relationship and have that really positive experience with your clients and, you know, the team that you're working with, then you're not going mm-hmm. to make much progress. So I totally agree. And this is one that I'm really um, well-versed in just because I've been a teacher for 11 years. Um, and I, we talked about this in grad school when I was going back for my master's in special education and it's so important to have that um, instructional motivation. I love, I love when you said that. I was like, it. I was like, that makes so much um, sense, and it makes, and it just sounds so much better. Yeah, I like, I like the word motivation instead of control. Um, but just, uh, just having that motivation to um, work. I mean, just working with your clients or your learner and um, gaining that uh, momentum and pairing with them. And um, that way you can continue to um, work together and have this great relationship and um, just building those, I mean, working together, I mean, is so paramount to um, the uh, the future of, I mean, it's just like, if you don't have this groundwork laid down, then it's not going to go well. I feel yeah. like if you don't have that instructional motivation, you're not going to make progress with your learner. Yeah. Um, so this is one that um, I think if you're a BCBA or RBT, um, special education teacher, sp- teacher, this is where you should spend a lot of your energy researching um because this will make a big deal in your classroom and you will see a lot of growth from students once you gain that instruct instructional motivation so yeah i'm gonna Um, i'm I'm, I'm gonna use that for now and i love that (laughs) yeah and i agree with you especially from like the classroom side of things there's in, in general, you know, we have a lot of work to do in our field, but especially in the schools, even for like general education and things like that, parenting, there's a, a lot of work that needs to be done societally to build instructional motivation. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm telling you, Megan, like, uh, it, like once I learned more, but learned more about um, ABA and how to apply it in my classroom, I was like, um, why aren't all special education teachers, you know, why don't they all have this coursework, um, that they have to go through to get their special education, um, degree? Cause a lot of it apply. I mean, like all of it applies to their classroom. I don't care what type of learner you are, where, uh, what type of setting it works. And it's, it's, 
it, it was just so eye-opening for me whenever um, I started my coursework at ODU for um, ABA. And the difference in my classroom has drastically changed in my viewpoints since um, starting has drastically changed as well. Yeah. I am not the same teacher I was four years ago when I started. I hope that you you wouldn't have been anyway, but you just like accelerated your improvements by learning about all. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I, I was great. I mean, I, I, I thought I was really good, um, and I was, but just, just adding that extra component, just, I just felt like it made a huge difference in difference in my classroom and my students, and I, I can see it in my students, my students responded to it yeah. so uh so much more that's awesome so, yeah i also forgot to mention in the resources there's a couple of books that i'll put in the the show notes the seven steps of instructional control and motivation mm -hmm. and reinforcement by robert shram robert also has a facebook group relating to this and we did a two-part podcast episode interview with him so <laughs> lots of resources on this topic and so i'll make sure all of that's in the show notes and the next one is the Early Start Denver model. Mm -hmm. So this is one that I learned about right after grad, well, not right after, like three years after graduate school. This is one that the model itself didn't exist until then, 2010, <laughs> I think, is when their book was, pub the first book was published and the first research came out on it. But for this one, I really dove in then and did, learned a lot. So especially around their, understanding of language from a developmental perspective and imitation as a communication it, not just something you teach topographically to like imitate but it serves like mm -hmm. a, a communication purpose and then in 2017 I think or 18 I can't remember now I did the I think it was 18 I did their like um, online course and did an in-person workshop and it's funny because they talk about their joint activity routines in their book, but for whatever reason, that didn't hit home for me when I learned, when I learned everything <laughs> I did in 2010. So yeah. in uh, 2017 or 18, whenever I did that other additional kind of refresher training and in-person training, the joint activity routine is also really important. And this stuff is from early intervention, like birth to three. But again, a lot of it, if you generalize and apply it to any age that you're working with, obviously it's specific to autism or other language delays. But again, I just find most things that I learn about, you can figure out ways to apply to anything. So I did a webinar in April of 2018 where I go over the Early Start Denver model in more detail and the Mind Institute has a lot of resources. So I'll include a link to that. In the show notes, why do I think it's important? Obviously, if you're working with autism, it's important because it's an advancement on the research that we have available to us, especially for early intervention. But again, even if you're not working with autism, if you're working in any capacity where you're teaching language of some sort or you're, you're trying to build a relationship and engage socially with mm -hmm. learners, I think it's an important book to read. And they also go into some of the neurological research and things like that. So it's just a good... Again, you may not become an expert in it. You may not memorize all of it, mm -hmm. but it might be something that you need to pull from occasionally and reference when you're developing your interventions. Yep, that's where I'm at right now. It's like, it's one of my um, books to read. Um, 
again and just go through and just learn more about it and just apply it to um, the clients that I work with. Um, it's something that I heard about. We, I know we have done um, trainings on. It's just, it, it's just a um, matter of getting back into it for me and really learning it again and applying what, um, applying the principles. Um, because uh, like, this is one of the things that I was still in the middle of my coursework um, at ODU while trying to study for the um, big exam that this came, I mean, I, lear I first learned about this. So I wasn't, all, I wasn't totally in the right frame of mind to um, really grasp all the concepts. Yeah. So, and that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot, a lot going on whenever you're studying for that big exam. Yeah. Well, and there's a lot, like a lot of it, again, you know, we're, now we're going to start to get into, these are all things I've learned after graduate school. And mm -hmm. you don't know what's going to be important. You don't know what you don't know. And you don't know what's going to be important or relevant to your practice until you're practicing. So you attend to the things you need to when you're in graduate school, especially to pass your tests and your courses and to pass the exam. But then mm -hmm. as you work with more clients, you learn about additional things and you, you go find those resources. So hopefully mm -hmm. going over this list will give people ideas for their own practice as they encounter things and they don't have to reinvent the wheel. One thing I forgot to mention with the Early Start Denver model, it's not entirely related, but they're, one of the things that also helped me improve my developmental understanding of language and communication is the First Words Project. And that's something, again, that I knew about in graduate school, but I never really dove into because it, they had a site in Panama City where I went to graduate school at Florida State but I ended up working for them and still do conducting research. And I talk a bit about their work in the early intervention webinar from April, 2018, but just some of the resources they've created to help understand like what are gestures that learners should have by 16 months and what are different problem solving skills and play skills. And they have just all of these different resources that I think from a scope and sequence standpoint as behavior analysts, we don't mm -hmm. get enough training on and we try to jump the gun and start a lot of our behavioral intervention targets like way above where our learners should be, especially if we're doing early intervention. So yeah. I think that's another good resource for just that understanding language and social communication is the first words project. Nice. Okay. So next one is using shaping to develop reinforcers and strong relationships. So this is one for me, Shaping in and of itself, I learned a lot about in graduate school, thanks mm -hmm. again to Florida State, <laughs> but <laughs> to apply that and like put it in with my clients, it wasn't until I had a learner where it was just like absolutely necessary. I had two different cases around the same time and I was able to expand upon and like build a lot with that. So there was, um, I think that was around like 2011, 2012. And I did a webinar for the Do Better Movement in December of 2018, where I go over a lot of what I did there and how I applied shaping to develop reinforcers for learners that like really didn't have any reinforcers and really build that strong relationship with that learners who don't really attend to others in their environment. But Steve Ward also has this concept of STEAM, which is like looking at how motivated a learner is and how like their STEAM can increase and decrease. And he talks about that in his book, 
what you need to know about teaching games to children. So I'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Why do I think this is important? A lot of the clients that we encounter, at least if you're working in autism, but really, even if you're working, you could be working in, I don't like the name of like EBD classrooms. I think the name needs to change, but you could be working in like a high school EBD classroom. And if you don't understand Mm -hmm. how to properly connect with that, you know, 17 year old who's has a lot more language than you might even have and may be way smarter than you. <laughs> and that's going to be a problem. So again, you, you have to do some generalization and some application outside of my examples, but the process is still the same. So yeah. I think that if you don't know how to properly, again, look at that baseline, look at the relationship you have already and what reinforcers you have available and then systematically improve that using shaping, then you're going to struggle to provide effective intervention. Yeah. And just going back on the EBD, I agree with that just because I I would love that to be changed to something else. Maybe one of our listeners can um, give a suggestion as to like what we could change it in the future. Just because like, I I mean, that's where that's my setting right now as I work with uh, second and third graders who have severe emotional behavioral um disabilities and challenges and that's what that's what we call our classroom is an ebd classroom um or self-contained or um um we also use um the read classroom i just think the there's a better term out there that um that that would be better to be i mean that would be used in a way that's um, gives a, our kids a little bit more dignity. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I just, I mean, if you if you're listening right now, uh, you can definitely um, make a comment and uh, do better movement uh, Facebook group and just give us suggestions. I would love to hear your suggestions. Maybe we can start a trend for yeah. movement. <laughs> <laughs> Shaping was one of those techniques that I learned as a teacher, but I didn't know the terminology uh, behind shaping. So as a teacher, I use shaping in my classroom to work with the student to get to a terminal terminal behavior that I wanted to see them to get to, but I would do it in successive steps uh, to help them get to that terminal behavior. once I started in ABA with my coursework and studying for the exam, I learned the ter- terminology and how to um, apply it better um, as a teacher and practitioner. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the next three kind of all are similar, not in what's being taught, but just how I got there. So toileting, feeding, and like sleep programming, keeping in mind, I'm not talking about really intensive situations where you would need to have like a high level of expertise. I'm just talking about basic protocols, you know, that you may encounter like a picky eater, Mm -hmm. or if you have a little bit of a sleep issue where maybe they're like not falling asleep at the time the parent wants them to, or they're like waking up and can't fall back asleep. And then for toileting, just like your basic, you know, getting, getting toilet trained. So these are not necessarily things. I think 
in general, it's hard to work in our field and not encounter one of these. So you should have at least a basic understanding of the research in our field on these three areas. And I, again, was a fortune. I was one of those things at Florida State that we did. I had practice with all three of these while I was in graduate school with clients at Florida State. So we were able to develop our protocols using the research that they recommended to us and then provide, uh, you know, get feedback and training from our supervisors at that time. So that was really nice. And then I've expanded my knowledge though on each of these, the feeding, not so much. I kind of, you know, learned what I needed to around picky eating and not like, <laughs> hold on, I'm not a feeding expert. Um, I did expand it a little bit in like my early work in the field, just coming up with some of my own resources of how to present information to families and things like that. But anyway, I did a do better webinar on this in 2018 in November, covering all three and some of the research that is most important to me in these areas. And I think Dr. Hanley, especially for sleep, has a nice workbook that he has available for toileting. Dr. Mary Barbera also has some resources. So I'll put those in the show notes on that as well. But again, I'm talking about like basic basic, not, not yeah. expertise level, feeding, toileting, and sleep. But if you are in a situation where you're needing more intensive, obviously you'd want to get mentorship and work with someone who actually does research in those areas. Yeah, definitely. Like I have only touched um, toileting um, just a like very, very small amount um, with what we have, I mean, what we uh, needed to do with a, a client. But um, that's one I had to reach out and work with another BCBA on, um, sleep. Um, I, I have read through a couple of, um, Greg Hanley's resources, uh, for sleep. He has an actual assessment too on, um, sleep, which I really like, and I haven't used it yet, but I will, if I ever come across, um, a client that, um, the parents are requesting for assessment for, um, sleep and how to set up those, um, rituals, routines at night, um, uh, for, for their, uh, son or daughter. Um, but yeah, I, these, this is something that we touched on maybe briefly during our, my, uh, coursework, but we didn't go in a, um, very detailed. But it's important because uh, there are definitely, um, I mean, our clients definitely have issues with toileting, feeding, or sleep at some point. And it's, not, and it's important to know just the basic protocols for those, um, when those situations arise. Yep. And that's why I put in the, the show notes, like, you should at least know what some standard protocols are for some standard toileting, feeding, and sleep issues and have that in your toolbox. And then if yeah. you encounter things that go outside of that, you would need to seek mentorship or refer out to a different BCBA or, or expert on that topic. The next one mm -hmm. is effective supervision. I kind of combined effective supervision and organizational behavior management as two things. They're not necessarily that connected, but it was just easier in terms of we have a lot of stuff to talk about. So yeah. <laughs> um, the resources that I suggest for the, these are pretty similar. So 
basically um, most of us are in a, a situation where we are providing supervision or we're training others to provide supervision and we're also working with other people and especially if you get into a leadership position or you own your own business you'll have to have some understanding of organizational behavior management so that's why both of yeah. these are on there i again at florida state they laid the groundwork for some of this we had a whole entire class on performance management with dr bailey mm -hmm. We didn't have one necessarily on supervision because back when I went, that wasn't an area that was as much of a focus, but I was fortunate in 2017, I taught a supervision course for Florida State. So I was able to kind of revamp on some of my skills there. And I also created a supervision practicum for Ohio State and our supervision materials for navigation behavioral consulting. And then I've provided a lot of supervision and training and all of that kind of stuff. So this is just an area that's like constantly growing and changing. Mm -hmm. I, again, groundwork was laid in 2005 to 2007, but I've had these like shots of um, moments like throughout my career where I've had to really dive in. It's not something that every month I'm reading a ton on. It's more like, oh, now I need to up my, like I, you know, I need to either stop drifting or I need to see what new things are out there and like dive in deep on this for whatever project. So I think obviously if you're consistently and regularly providing supervision or you're in a situation where you would be using, needing to use OBM, it's something you should obviously stay on top of. But for me, it's been a kind of ebb and flow type thing where <laughs> I haven't, haven't always needed to be on top of it. But when I do, I dive back in. So some of the things that I would recommend resource wise here, we do have a course uh, for do better that's on our website. It's not part of the free do better webinars, but it's training analysts or interventionists where we go through some of the different models of being a supervisor. A little star is a company up in Indiana. They have a supervision curriculum they need and they've published that really teaches people how to supervise and how to be a leader. So I think that's a really important one to have access to. Ellie Kazemi is out in California at CSUN. She's done a ton of work on effective supervision and has her own book and resources relating to that. The Behavior Analysis and Practice did a special edition on supervision in 2016. We used pretty much all of those articles in the course that I taught at FSU in 2017. It was perfect timing, but if you haven't read that, I definitely recommend reading it to get some ideas and also using it with any trainees that you have to help make sure that they're getting proper training on how to supervise. And then Reed and Parsons have a few different books on supervision and training. So one of them is called Motivating Human Services Staff. I'll link both of them in the show notes. But there is a lot of information out there now that didn't exist when I was in graduate <laughs> school. So it's trying, this is an area where it's definitely hard to stay on top of the you know good resources that are being put out. I didn't even necessarily include the OBM <laughs> side of things, but like the Reed and Parsons materials is it's an OBM. He's an OBM person. So it's OBM related. Anything by Dr. Aubrey Daniels is obviously going to be really important from an OBM perspective. Shannon Biaggi with uh, Mo Chief Motivating Officers has a company that focuses on OBM with coaching and training there as well. So there's a ton of resources. And I know even outside of behavior analysis, there's resources that if you're in a leadership position, you may want to look into, but I feel like I, that took me a really long time to talk about. So maybe we could even do a whole separate podcast episode on just like <laughs> supervision resources and, yeah. and OBM stuff. And then like, yeah, for me, like OBM, we talked about it a little bit in um, my last class that I took at, OD, um, at ODU. 
um, supervision. I learned um, a little bit that, about that in my coursework. And then I um, actually took a supervision course through um, one of your, your, one of your courseworks that you uh, created too, Megan. Yep. Um, so that's what I did for supervision. I think it's important for BCBAs to constantly be well-versed in this and this um, constantly um, being, ref I mean, just constantly refreshing themselves in supervision and how to do better um, to provide um, the best possible supervision to their um, technicians. Um, yep. Because, I mean, it's important. Yep. So. All right, the next one is barriers to learning, basically just knowing what they are and then assessing mm -hmm. and programming for them. Um, this is something, again, that I've kind of done since I started in this field, even before I went to graduate school, when I had clients that weren't making progress, I was constantly like, oh, what do we do here? That's where the analytical piece comes in. But to really understand like some of the common barriers and whatnot, when I met Steve Ward through the Yahoo groups back in the day <laughs> and then at conferences. So it was like a 2010, another kind of 2010 ish for me. And he has, he came out with the inventory of good learner repertoires that really helped me sort of better understand the barriers. But then I sort of ran with it and came up with some of my own things relating to that as well. And we have a do better webinar from January of 2018, where I go into more detail about that. And then we also have a course on our website that's um, Rediscover Your Roots, the part one, which is the precursor to the Do Better webinar, goes over like some of the common barriers and some of the ways we program for those. So the reason I think this is important, again, doesn't matter what population you're working with. If you can't mm -hmm. figure out why a learner is not learning, then that's going to be problematic. So we need not just to know what skill deficits they have, but what is getting in the way of them learning and acquiring those skills. Yes. And that's why I think it's the thing that we all should know about. Yeah. And this is something that I can, you know, say that I learned back when I was getting my master's as a special education teacher, and then just learned more about this whenever I um, joined navigation and um, continue, I'm um, continue to learn in this area as well. Um, but it's important because like, yeah, just like Megan said, if our learners, um, if, if you know they have their skill deficits, but that deficit and you're trying to work with them to um, gain these skills, but you have no clue as to what's preventing them from learning this, these skills, then that's where you need to step back and actually really figure out what's their barrier. Why aren't, why, what's bothering, I mean, what's, not allowing them to learn these skills. Yep. So, yeah. I'm glad to hear that you learned about it in your coursework too. That's good. Yeah. The next one is conditional discriminations. And that may sound like a basic one. I mean, it's on the task list, but I mean, <laughs> what I'm referring to is more about how to make sure when you're working with learners who have difficulty making conditional discriminations, what to do about that. So back again, this was one that came up more because I had a client that was having difficulty and then I developed a protocol and, you know, that was that. So that was around 2010 as well, 2011, that I worked with this client and we focused more on reinforcing discriminations. 
And I talk in more detail about that in our, that roots, um, rediscover your roots part one that I referenced earlier on our do better website. The, there's been more research that has come out on this topic as well. And I have it on my list to make a, an additional training to go over some even more components relating to this. But I think at the very least, it's important for behavior analysts, most of the clients that we work with, again, whether as long as you're working with people who ha are having difficulty with skill acquisition and like language um, that you're targeting. So whether it's in, you know, a general education classroom, special education, in a home, in a clinic, you're going to have things that you have to teach them how to discriminate. And if you don't understand how to properly reinforce that, you're not going to make as much progress. So I think that's why I had this on my list. It's kind of a smaller component. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's still something that it's really important that people understand how to, to use. Yeah. And um, this is something that, I, again, that um, I'm learning more and more about. Um, and, but it's, it's important to um, learn how to reinforce the discriminations, especially in the education classroom as well. I just added a new one. Sorry, Joe. <laughs> I thought okay. of when I was talking about that. So another one for me that came up around that same time is priming. And this one I actually mm -hmm. learned about the concept more so from when I was reading Pivotal Response. But then I had a, a trainee that I was supervising that was having difficulty with a learner making progress. And and then I also had a few clients around that same time that weren't making progress. So we started doing, instead of errorless prompting, where we would prompt a response after. So if I said, like, what is this bottle? You know, mm -hmm. we started saying, hey, this is a bottle. What is it? So we were priming them with the information ahead of time and then asking the question. And we started mm -hmm. finding that, that, that we were able to acquire skills a lot faster. And it was with a lot of the clients who also were having difficulty with conditional discriminations. So I don't know that I've actually done a training on this one yet. And mm -hmm. I think it's something that a lot of people talk about more now than when I first started using it. But that might be one that I go ahead and add to the list of trainings in the future to kind of go over some more examples with that. But um, it's basically a type of teaching strategy. I don't know if that's something you you would argue yeah. about. So, yeah, so in my, in my master's program, we talked about um, some – it's. Similar to what we call, um, what do you do for your pre, your pre, um, your, your pre, uh, pre activities for your instruction. So, like for me, um, I would prime what we're, I mean, prime our students for what we're learning about today. Yep. Um, and that that's a teaching strategy that we that teachers have been using for years. Um, so it's called, and yeah, and it's basically, um, and it's important because, um, it allows all that information that our students, um, have previous histories with to, um, basically come like, just come forward and for them to remember like, Oh, that's what, this is what we're going to talk about. I know all this information. Um, so they have a better, um, they're just ready for the lesson. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I definitely think a ton more research is needed for, to help kind of, that's a, definitely a, another practice to research gaff situation. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, I agree. 
All right, next one is precision teaching. And this one is kind of, it goes back to what you were talking about with graduate school. We talked about it. This was still on the task mm -hmm. list when I was in graduate school and we had a few lectures on it. We learned about yeah. the chart. We were tested on the chart and then I didn't do anything with it. So I put it further down on the list because really I didn't learn that much about precision teaching until 2012 when I was like just starting to go back to graduate school again, it was one learner that I had difficulty with and Steve Ward yeah. started giving me some like mentorship with. And then once I got to Ohio state, a lot of the students there were using, you know, were incorporating precision teaching. So I even had a course there that was like all precision teaching basically. And then obviously I did my dissertation on it. So mm -hmm. I really expanded my skills on it from 2012 to 2015 the areas, again, I don't necessarily think that you have to become an expert. If you do, if you have the time, you will be a phenomenal clinician from it. Yeah. But if you don't and you're already making really good progress with your learners, I think it's at least helpful to do some trainings on component composite skills, charting to see if there's skills you might need to chart that could help you make faster progress with your learners. Frequency mm -hmm. building, even if you decide not to chart, just understanding frequency building and the importance of getting learners to perform things effortlessly is really important. Learning pictures kind of ties in with charting as well. Multi-level assessment. So really seeing not just like in the day to day, are they performing the way that you want, but how is that translating to like real life? And then the big six, which is what I did my dissertation on is looking at motor movement fluency. So those are, I mean, charting is what mo most people think about when they think about precision teaching, but yeah. you could technically, I know, Precision teachers are probably going to like hear this and cringe, but for me, I could like completely get rid of the chart if I had to give up something and I would still be a much better teacher with my learners knowing those other things because without, mm -hmm. especially the component composite skills piece, like a lot of my clients wouldn't have made the progress that they have once I learned about that. And it's like, I look back and I'm constantly like, man, I really wish I had known about that, you know, with these clients before 2012 that I could have been using. <laughs> so that, that for me, again, I think there's a lot of critical features within precision teaching that if you don't know to look for those things or, or to work those into the work you're doing, you're not going to yeah. be as effective. And I did do a webinar on those highlighted areas in July of 2018 for Do Better. Yeah. And this is one that I constantly uh, dabble in. Um, I learned about it first when I was at um, at Old Dominion University. And we touched on this and also we actually used that funky blue graph, <laughs> uh, which was awesome. Um, and then I just dabble in it, um, loop up a little bit um, over, the, over the years. Um, and then just uh, whenever there's a precision teaching uh, episode on behavioral observation, I make sure I listen to that. Um, I think, the, I mean, like, I really want to use more of this in my, in just my average day practice. It's just sitting down and making the commitment to use it. Um, it's, and it's just um, choosing, and it's, and it's building that habit that for me that I need to do is just sit down and actually do it and just choose one little thing to, I mean, one thing to track. Yeah. Um, and then I can build from there. Um, then I can f uh, become more and more um, uh, fluent with it as well. Yeah. But I think it's a great tool that um, as a behavior analyst that we should be using. 
Yeah. Uh, just to, and I, I love it because you can see moment to moment um, think what's happening and adjust your teaching strategies um, with, um, with that chart based yes. on what you're seeing, which I love. Um, and I'm seeing the funky blue chart a lot more on Facebook because of everyone tracking um, COVID-19 cases, which is really interesting to see. Yeah. It's the only thing that makes sense when you see other graphs that are being posted. So yeah, it definitely yeah, yeah. highlights the importance of the chart. Yeah. So. <laughs> All right. Next one is instructional design. Again, this is a whole field in and of itself. That, mm -hmm. But I do think having some basic understanding, especially of concept analysis and how uh, Tiemann and Markle's, the, there's like a little graphic of how learning occurs I think is really important as behavior analysts because if you don't have those understanding when you go to develop your programs, it's you're not going to be as effective. So this yeah. is one I did a webinar on in August of 2018. If anybody really likes any of the direct instruction materials like Language for Learning or Reading Mastery or 100 Easy Lessons to Reading or Head Sprout, all of that, the reason those things are so good is because the people who created them are instructional designers. Mm -hmm. So any, any good curriculum, if you're in the school system where you're like, wow, this is really powerful, I guarantee you a really good instructional designer was behind that. <laughs> so um, understanding give, all of that is really important. <laughs> yeah, and I'm gonna give you another, um, uh, another, uh, another curriculum that's amazing that I have seen a lot of progress from my students is called the LLI system, which is level literacy intervention. Okay. Um, and it has a great instructional design to it. Um, I have seen kids that make, I mean, before what we were using were they made no growth. Now they're making anywhere between a half year up to two years growth just using this program. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. And it's an amazing program, but, Again, like Megan said, I mean, there's probably someone, I mean, the person that created it probably has a background in instructional design. Yeah. So, I mean, as far as um, why we should learn more about it, um, I would think as a BCBA, it's really, I mean, this is something that you can dabble in and just learn more about how to uh, create instruction that's more, um, that that's just draw. I mean, create instruction that just makes your uh, learner grow uh, quicker. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot to mention when I learned about this. So for me, instructional design, I was using language for learning and all of those types of things early mm -hmm. on, like 2010 or so, but I didn't really learn formal information about instructional design and why direct instruction was so good <laughs> until I went to Morningside Summer Training mm -hmm. Institute and that was in 2014. So that's when I learned and I'm still that's an area that I'm growing in. We covered it. Amy Evans presented on it for the Do Better Couch to Camp and it's something we're incorporating there. There's a lot of precision teaching stuff as well that we incorporated and whenever I listen to Amy or Kathy or Corinne or some of the other precision teachers that I follow present, I'm like, yes, I learned something, you know, but <laughs> so that's an area, even though I've knew about it for six years, it's still an area. Again, I've dabbled. I know just yeah. enough to improve a little bit of what I do, but I dive back into it all the time <laughs> because yeah. I don't know enough about it. Yeah. And I, I still say that, you know, 
of being a teacher, I mean, this, I mean, we, ha- we get this in um, this training back in when we go for our bachelors on how to provide um, excellent direct, t- uh, provide excellent instruction um, for direct teaching, yeah. um, direct instruction. So yeah, that's me. awesome. Yeah. Not all programs do that. <laughs> no, no. All right. The next one is most motivational interviewing and appreciative inquiry. This is actually one that I learned about a little bit in one of the general education classes at um, Ohio State that I took the first year there. So that was like back in 2012. I guess I put this in a little bit, a little bit out of order. But anyway, that was mentioned by one of the guest lecturers, and then the appreciative inquiry was. And then I went to a training that Kent Corso did, I think in 2013 or 2014, he did a workshop on this and, and that really blew my mind. And then I also went, when I started back at Florida State working for the First Words Project and they have a thing called Autism Navigator through the Autism Institute there. And that was a big component of the work that they do for their parent coaching. Mm-hmm. So I've had it kind of, you know, coming, it didn't initially encounter it until 2012, but it's been sort of put into my life numerous times since then. And it's an area again, where I've learned just enough to improve, but I still want to do more training on it. I did talk about it in our parent coaching webinar from do better in March of 2018 and shared some resources relating to it. And like I said, autism navigator does a a really great job of incorporating information about it and like developing their parent coaching model off of it. But I highly recommend if you're coaching parents or working with anyone really, and you have to make behavior change happen, especially Mm -hmm. if you're working with like high schoolers or adults where you're trying to help motivate them to like (laughs) move, make some movement towards things. Both of these areas are really helpful and they may not use words that are behavior analytic in nature, but you can take everything they talk about and translate it into behavior analysis. That's awesome. And this is something that I haven't dabbled in at all. Um, something that's on my list as well. Um, but I think it's really beneficial for behavior analysts to know um, some information about this just because you're working with parent tra- uh, parents and um, you're going to have to provide parent training. And this is uh, a great way to motivate um your parents and also just to work with them um, and just gain that um, rapport with them as well. Yeah. The next one is the evidence-based practice model. And again, just focusing on that creating analyst piece of things. So (laughs) the evidence-based practice model, I had my initial exposure to that was when I was at Ohio State, one of my colleagues was doing her research in that area. And we, we read about some of it in class too, but I just through talking with her. So that was around 2014. And then I went like kind of read some research on it because I was really interested in what she was doing. Susan Wilczynski talks, does a lot of research on this. She's a BCBAD and Tim Slocum also, and Mm -hmm. some colleagues of his. So I did a webinar in May of 2018, where I go over what is the evidence-based practice model. We actually just did an ethics panel with Mary Barbera, myself, Robert Sheram and Steve Ward, where we talked about like how we incorporate the evidence-based practice model into our work too. I think it's important because again, we're analysts, so we should be analyzing things and not just relying on lists. And the evidence-based practice model incorporates a problem-solving component as opposed to just being like, well, here's my list of things that I can do. Yeah. And I think that's important too, to uh, 
to use is just instead of just having that list, but you know, just to be able to think analytically and to also uh, use this model to um, decide what's the best practice for your client. Um, still learning about this as well. Um, I, I can't recall if we touched about this in my coursework, but um, I, I, I but it's definitely something that I still am want learning more about. Perfect. Medical necessity is one that I was definitely not around when I was in graduate school. <laughs> um, yeah. I learned, dove into this more back in, again, I think around 2012 to 2014, somewhere in there, mm -hmm. but mostly out of, out of, we were required to from insurance, yeah. but I was fortunate to hang out with Tim Courtney at a few conferences and, and we're, you know, professional colleagues. And he did a webinar for the behavior analysis advocacy network back mm -hmm. in like 2014 or 16. I really lose track of the, the years at this point. <laughs> and that, that really does a great job. He, they encountered medical necessity as something if you're working and this is one that is like, oh, sorry, this chair is loud. Apparently. Um, it's, um, if you're not working in insurance, maybe you don't need to know it as well. But I do think if regardless, I think that we need to know why we're targeting what we're targeting and how to set that up based around the mm -hmm. diagnoses that we're doing, which is so contra like it's such a contrast to what I learned in graduate school. Like we were told mm -hmm. diagnoses don't matter and things like that. But once I've worked with the different populations I've worked with, it really does help to know your population, <laughs> you yes. know, even if things might be circular reasoning or like blaming on symptoms, it's still helpful to know what those things are and develop your plans to address that, especially from a social validity standpoint to help the, the families and the person you're serving. They, they probably are coming to you with like a, if you're, if you're talking to them about, you know, what are the things they want to improve in their lives? It's usually going to be around things relating to what they're diagnosed with. <laughs> so yeah. um, go ahead. Yeah. And I, I agree. I mean, like medical necessity is like a big component that, if you're working with um, insurance companies, you should know um, and to constantly be aware of what their uh, each insurance company's idea of medical necessity is um, just for treatment plans to um, have your treatment plans, plans approved and also to create programming around that medically medical necessity. Yeah. Um, because it's because um, it is contrary, like you, um, contrary to like you know, you know, for me as a teacher, like oh, they have a deficit to here, 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 but now we're in the point of okay, so what is? Um, yes, they have deficits in all these areas, but what is medically? Um, necessary for them to work on to have uh to um to i mean what do they need to work on to um to be addressed so yeah yeah so and like, obviously like the goal is to help create like happy independent <laughs> yeah so how yeah. are you doing that and like why are we medically necessary for that yeah the other resource that i think it's not it's not on the like face that you would know this necessarily, but I referenced Autism Navigator earlier. They do such mm -hmm. a great job of focusing on, especially for autism, that 
the different, um, you know, red flags and the ways that the diagnosis can impede that, you know, goal of developing an, an independent, happy life. So not necessarily trying to change the, the children or anything like that, but just helping to support them and like help mm-hmm. them, you know, if there are things interfering with them interacting in the environment in the way that they would want to, like, how do you work through that? And they, they break it down based on the DSM five. So that's like mm-hmm. in, in and of itself going to be helping in terms of a medical necessity standpoint, because you're looking at things through the framework of the diagnosis instead of yep. just a list of, you know, whatever. So I think that that med, that autism navigator has really helped me in terms of better operationally defining some of the things that, learners with autism would would want to have um addressed and again not to change who they are but just to help support their skill acquisition and sort of navigating the world uh so that they can fully participate at the level that they want to all right we have a few more left but we're coming down we always do this we're like we're gonna make this one shorter and then i talk too much All right. So the next one is (laughs) relational frame theory. This is another one that I actually had exposure to in graduate school, but it wasn't really presented to me in a way that was helpful or functional. So for me, I didn't really start diving in on this more. I did go to a few conference presentations. I talked about this in our podcast episode, Mm -hmm. but I really didn't dive into it more until peak came out. And that was back in like 2015 and then going Mm -hmm. into like 2016. So this is one that I really kind of learned quickly because I went to the trainings and learned, you know, and then I started training people on it. (laughs) So uh, for peak specifically, but I'm still learning. Then that's part of the reason why I transitioned because I knew enough from like the basics to train people when peak was new, but now that it's been around a while, I'm still learning too. So I need to learn more about relational frame theory. So for the resources that I put in here, I also recommended there's a book that came out recently by Siri Ming on relational okay. frame theory. And I'm working through reading that right now. Foxy learning has their course. We've did the do better podcast episode on it. Mm-hmm. I have a few webinars planned. Uh, one, one of them will be on relational frame theory. I didn't incorporate any of the like theoretical books in here. Feel free to find those and read those. But in terms of a practitioner basis, I don't think it's helpful why do I think it should be on the list, especially when there is such a, like, it's a hotly debated topic in our field. I, again, I talked about this in our like two hour podcast episode on it, but yeah. I just don't, I don't think you can practice if you're again, doing anything with any learners, whether it's general education or special education in home clinic, whatever the diagnosis is, if you're working on anything that touches on language and you don't yeah. understand relational frame theory and the different frames and how language develops once you get beyond the verbal operants, then you're going to struggle and your clients will not make as much progress. Yeah. And I agree. I was like, uh, so I'm still learning about relational frame theory. There's so much out there. Um, I'm using the peak assessments with my clients now. Um, and it's just, it, it just has made so, a huge difference to me as a clinician. Um, and also for my clients, just to see them growing um, from targeting these skill deficits using um, the peak assessment and um, using relational frame theory um, to address the de- deficits. So um, definitely learned it whenever I first moved. I, I first started at um, navigation, 
am still learning and because um, I have seen a lot of growth in my students and my learners with that. Awesome. Yeah. The next one's acceptance and commitment therapy. <laughs> so Ash. this is another one that I think, uh, so some people call it acceptance and commitment training. If you're not like a counselor or licensed psychologist, it might be better to refer to it as that. But again, I'm not an expert in it. I've had mm -hmm. people sometimes ask me to do trainings on it. I could never, like, I'm still learning a ton. This, I started, I went to my first ACT boot camp in two, or only ACT boot camp in 2018. So this is one of those like newer areas for me. Mm -hmm. But what I picked up on really quickly and have applied in my practice from right, what I was already doing, but it also helped me improve upon are some of the things like relating to it okay, being okay to engage in challenging behavior. We just need yep. to help you do it in ways that are more adaptive. Um, and then looking at things that move you toward reinforcers and values and things that move you away from those, how you frame things and being flexible, just like all of those kinds of things that are talked about in acceptance and commitment. I, you know, I know the hexaflex, I know about the different parts of it, but I don't have yeah. any of that memorized. I could explain it to you maybe if I had some like <laughs> little prompts in front of me. Yeah. But again, I don't, I haven't found that I need to yet memorize all of that stuff. I've just taken little bits of it and helped it improve what I'm doing. I do think again, regardless of what population you're working with, just being a human being, <laughs> yeah. understanding these things can help not only your practice as a behavior analyst, but just your existence as a human. So it is, I think, an important area for everyone to learn about because of that. And just working with my, the population I work with, Megan, um, in my school setting, um, I've been using, well, I've been dabbling in AIM with my with my students that I work with, and now since we're you know separated from um, school, I really want to um, implement some of the um, ACK um, practices with my with my classes via you know online through Seesaw, um, just to provide that social emotional support as well. Um, and then also, uh, I just had a awesome um, conference with, uh, well, I attended an awesome conference with Tommy Perry um, here in Portsmouth, Virginia, and it was phenomenal. And it's, there's just so much information just to, um, to learn about, but it makes a huge difference, not only with the clients that are just the learners in general, but also you can apply this to parent training and working with your parents. Yep. Um, you know, just putting things in perspective um, for them and perspective taking and uh, remaining flexible, especially with your client, uh, your learners who are higher functioning and older too. It, it this is a great uh, place to, uh, a great um, um, area to use to work on those uh, diff different uh, skills. I mean, those skill deficits. Yep. Yep. And I did add that we did the webinar with Tommy Perry in 2019. It's not the same training that Joe was talking about, but that is something if you want to, there's so many resources on apps. Yeah. I can't possibly put them all here. So I'm just type it into your Google search and you'll find a ton of stuff. So, um, 
The next one is teaching and coaching emotional regulation. So for me, this is something I started focusing on even when I was at Florida State as a clinical director. So back in 2008, but it's not. And then I've had clients like off and on where I've used it a little bit and I've done a few yeah. trainings. So the Do Better webinar from September of 2018, I touch on this, but it's still an area that I'm constantly growing in and I've learned so much even just from my own son and like watching him <laughs> develop and like have a complete lack of emotional regulation, you know, as a toddler yeah. and like develop skills in that area. So there's a few different resources for me. Again, this is one I consider more new currently though, like around yeah. probably 2016 when Taylor was born as something I really like started going hard on mostly because of Taylor, but also because of a couple of clients I had at that time, I've had during this time. But Jonathan Amy does a really good um, training on this relating to emotional regulation from like a precision teaching perspective. And then I also learned some stuff about this with the CERTS model, it's social communication, emotional regulation and transactional supports. And that's something I learned about at FSU. And then, so that was like the 2016 piece, or I guess 2015, December of 2015 is when I went to that training. I've been using this um, thing called the emotional ABCs with Taylor. It's geared for ages four to seven. I've only been going through their online website thing where it's like a list of lessons that you go through with your child. I just found out mind blown that they have a whole entire teacher section that has 20 different workshops with a whole lesson plan situation where you have like your overview and it has a warm up and it has your actual activities and then it has a follow up and like a self management like it's got all of this <laughs> stuff so it's amazing and it's i don't you know it's not something that i could say oh there's been research studies done on it but just knowing what i know so far about learning about emotions and how to deal with it it's laid out very nicely and the instructional design of it's really good uh so I would recommend that if you're serving that age group, there's a ton of different mindfulness books and resources that you can look at. One that one of my clients is using right now is called breathe like a bear, but there's just a ton of different books like that now. So that's really helpful. So tons of resources on that. That's probably one we could do a whole nother podcast episode on. Oh yeah, I think it's important because most of our clients, they're part of the reason they're, they're needing services is because this is a deficit for them. They have not properly mm -hmm. learned how to, maybe even identify what emotion they're feeling, but then what to do with it and how to shift. Like if they're having a lot of high energy and they need to bring themselves down or if they're calm and they need to bring themselves up, like just those physiological changes and like what to do about that. And it's an area I think behavior analysis has stayed largely away from too, yeah. even though it's something we, we encounter all the time and we need to yep. work on. And then just with my population, I uh, work with, I, with the students who, um, have those emotional disabilities. Um, even just, I mean, I don't care what population you, you work with. Um, this is such a huge component that should be addressed in schools. Um, actually, I feel like we should uh, decrease the amount of academic time that we provide and focus more on social emotional regulation and skills. Um, so, in my program, we have used uh, the behavior skills streaming uh, yep. program. We used, uh, we're using something called Second Step, um, which is a excellent program, which I love because it provides a lot more videos. It's great for those students from K through five because, and then the kits are great 
Uh, they have all the resources right there. Um, I also, uh, this is another one that uh, we have been using. It's called the Zones of Regulation um, that we've been using in our classroom as See, well. See, that one? See, I think we should do another episode on this because that one is one I'm not a fan of, but we don't have time to talk about it right now. I'll just put it out there as a teaser. <laughs> to be honest, yeah, I, I, I would love to hear your perspective on that too, Megan, just because, I mean, that's something that my program, I, I don't have any say in what program we use. Yeah. But that's the program that we have been um, using in our um, setting right now is a zones of regulation. Um, I would, I would, I would love to see more of the um, just using ACT um, as well with some other component with emotional regulation. I think that would be that would be the best the best thing for schools to use. Yeah. So, but All yeah. Right. We have a few left. We're almost at our two hour mark. Okay, so the <laughs> next one, I kind of combined these because again, we just had so many bullet points. They are really separate things, but they're, they were in my life combined <laughs> in terms of learning yeah. about them. So, um, but the idea of assent withdrawal in terms of when you're providing your intervention, making sure you have assent and like recognizing when withdrawal is happening, Human rights in general, again, both of those things have been prevalent for me since starting in the field, and you can see it in the trainings and workshops I've mm -hmm. done, but it's still an area that because the information didn't exist for us and we were trained kind of opposite of some of these things, uh, I think I could continue growing in, and I've seen mm -hmm. really wonderful, amazing presenters start to come out of the last two or three years that are like way have way more expertise in this than I do. So I'm excited to continue to learn more about it and continue to improve on what I'm doing there. And then the third part of it is relating to um, issues around like gender identity and pronouns and sexual orientation, all of those types of things, like making sure that we're not, you know, forcing certain ideas on our clients or being aware of the differences in like diversity and just cultural awareness. Um, the different things that we talked about in the uh, podcast episode that we did with um, Aaron and Denisha. So yeah. I'll put that in here as well. So just all of those sort of concepts, I know they're not like they're each their own thing and they deserve their own bullet point. But in my life, yeah. they all sort of came, you know, in terms of seeing a lot of information about them and areas I could get more training in around mm -hmm. like the last couple of years. So like 2018, probably. So Upswing Advocates is really has a has different workshops and trainings they do on this. We had uh, one of their, their workshops, just an hour presentation for the Couch to Camp um, from August, and that was amazing. They did such a great job. And they also are starting to do some online training, so that's really helpful. And then as I mentioned, the um, beautiful people, why do I, I always call it the wrong thing, the Aaron and Denisha's podcast. Okay beautiful humans. Yeah, <laughs> I always call it beautiful people. And then I'm like, it's not a Marilyn Manson song. Beautiful <laughs> humans. <laughs> um, so they, and they've been putting out a lot of amazing stuff as well. So, the, and there's other people in our field that are, are presenting on these concepts that I, I can't wait to continue to learn from because I, yeah. and again, why? Because we work with behavior and changing people's lives. And if we're not on top of these concepts, we could be going down like really wrong paths for people. So we need to be exactly. aware of these things. And we do, and 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 it's becoming more um, 
And it's just becoming more, I mean, you need to be more aware of these type of issues just because, I mean, it's prevalent in our society today. And it's so important to have that uh, uh, consent and, um, you know, that constant communication um, and treat people with um, dignity and respect, you know? So, I mean, basically this is something that, you know, I don't think that you can ever just um, not, I don't think this is something that you can just say, all right, I learned about this. I'm done. I don't need to learn anything more. (laughs) I think this is one that you constantly have to be learning and um, diligent about, because I think this is, since we're working with humans and people who have a whole um, slew of uh, different personalities and um, just different things that make them who they are. I think this is something that we need to constantly be vigilant about and just learn. Um, I don't think you could ever learn too much about this, especially uh, people's culture as well, because I mean, I have come in contact with already uh, quite a few um, just different backgrounds and cultures that I'm not well versed in what their culture, like what they believe in culturally. Um, I think as a BCBA, um, part of ethics code is like, you know, we need to be aware of different cultural backgrounds. Um, And I just think ethically, we need to be aware of just who we're working with and what what their culture entails yes yep yeah and that's i do want to make sure it's clear in graduate school i learned about especially from like the the dignity and respect we spent so much time on ethics but things shift and change even when i went to ohio state a few years after graduating and you know we had different courses we had to take on cultural Mm -hmm. competencies and diversity and things like that. And even that, so that was 2012 to 2015, even graduating from Ohio state in 2015 and the time from 2015 to now, there's so much, you know, that we were made, that we've been made aware of, thankfully by people who have different lived experiences that it's, Mm -hmm. you know, you just, this is an area where a lot of us don't know what we don't know because we all have different experiences. So we can, I don't think this is one that you would ever be able to say, oh yeah, I know all of the things about this. <laughs> it's constantly yeah. changing and improving to help improve, you know, the human experience for everyone. Mm-hmm. Okay. The next one is having a comprehensive understanding of language development. I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but basically the idea is really if you're working and teaching language, whether it's mm-hmm. autism or Down syndrome or you know, just general education classroom, but maybe there's some delays, like whatever it is, if you're in charge of teaching language, then you should really understand how language develops from birth <laughs> to problem solving. Yes. And so that's something, again, I've, I think my whole entire, I think a lot of us would say we've learned since the time we started in the field, but I definitely didn't have the full developmental perspective of it in graduate school until I went to yeah. Ohio State. But I put this towards the end of my list because for me, it really didn't come to more of a forefront until I had Taylor. And I I had more of an experience of like, oh, this is, you know, what tends to happen. But my job at Florida State has really helped with that too. So basically from like 2000, 
I would say 17 or 18 because Taylor's language, you know, when he was an infant, I learned after the fact things that he should have been doing, but I wasn't even aware at that time like, what I was <laughs> looking for. So I think that this is something that can really improve the work we do if we understand that. And it's, it's something I'm, I haven't done a training on yet, but I have on the list for hopefully this year to do to help disseminate that information. But it's something that, again, I have like an overview understanding of, and then I would dive in more as needed for the clients that I'm serving. Yeah, this is something that I'm still learning more about. Um, I know, uh, I know the basics of like language development, but um, I know more about the language development when you get into elementary schools, where they should be at. Um, but um, this is, I mean, if you're working with any type of um, language disorders or skill deficits. I mean, I think this is something that we all need to be well-versed in. Yeah. The next one is shared agenda. This is actually a concept from Autism Navigator. So I had my first exposure to it back in 2015 or 2016, but it's another one that I haven't really started fleshing out until the last like year where I've had a client where we've been working on teaching him how to share agendas and like deal with having things his way versus everyone's way. Mm -hmm. um, but also being able to share an agenda as the person that's teaching. So if you're the, the analyst on the case, like not getting so caught up in what your focus is and your agenda, <laughs> being able to share <laughs> your agenda. So it's something that really at Couch to Camp, when we did our online conference, I started talking about a little bit there, but I plan to do more training on again, hopefully this year. And it's something I feel like I have a firm enough grasp on right now to train people, mm -hmm. but it's one of those where I don't think I'm going to find much published on it, but it'll be something that the more I encounter situations where I have practice writing programs about it or like developing strategies for it, it'll continue to evolve. But I think that this is something I definitely didn't have any exposure to until uh, the autism navigator and really that concept of like people being so focused on their own agenda and helping people expand to share an agenda with others. And this is an area that I have no background in. Um, and I think this is something that I can learn more about too. Um, but, and I think it's important for BCBAs to know, I mean, dabble in this and to, really um, learn more about sharing agendas for our clients. Yeah. And then the last one that I had for the list is being responsive <laughs> to the learner. So this is one that, again, I've always done um, as a behavior analyst. I definitely came up with some things in grad school that my professors were like, what are you doing here? <laughs> but it was just like based on that, you know, sort of value for me of, you know, what I'm doing needs to be responsive to like what the learner is showing me and being at their level and then adjusting accordingly. But in the last couple of years, I've started to focus more on trying to make plans that are more flexible and based on what the learner is doing. So looking at is the learner, the learner's doing this, I need to do that. And then how do they respond when I do this and like shifting, being flexible instead of following these like black and white protocols. So mm -hmm. Again, that's something that I've had a lot of practice with doing with the families that I'm working with the last couple of years, but I haven't really trained people on it yet. I did do a presentation at 
Faba last year, and then it was part of Couch to Camp this year. So it's another one that I'm hoping to make a training on for 2020. But I think the reason it's important, again, if we're, if we're behavior analysts <laughs> and we're supposed to be helping our learners access, you know, more reinforcement, then we need to be able to have our plans be responsive to what they're actually doing and not just write mm-hmm. a plan and then be like, well, it didn't work. <laughs> yeah. You know, so. I, and, and I can test to this too. It's like, it's just being responsive to, um, and while in session and have plans that, you know, you can be flexible in and just, um, just use that piece where you can fill out this, your learner and be flexible. I think this, the biggest thing for me where I learned this is just working in the pipe with the population I did back. I mean, while I'm still at school is, um, just, I go in every day. I have plants that are flexible because I don't know what's, um, going to happen that day. I could, I mean, I could go into that school day and, um, why I have plan is not what I do right? because (laughs) (laughs) and I have so, I mean, and I learned that too very quickly my first year, um, back in what? Oh, eight. Yeah. Oh, eight. And, um, that, yeah, I can make the best plan, but they're not flexible or I can't on the fly adjust my plan, um, based on motivation, based on, um, this, um, the learner's emotional health, the learner's um, motivation, uh, they're just going to fall. I mean, you know, fail and I'm not going to make any progress that day. Yep. So, um, yeah. Oh, this was the list we came up with. I have had this list in my head for a long time, but this was the first time I like typed it out. I may have missed (laughs) some things. Joe may have missed some things. I'd love to get feedback from our listeners. So Mm -hmm. feel free to to leave us a comment uh, on the podcast, wherever you listen to it. But also you can hop over to the Do Better Facebook group if you're in there and comment as well if there's things on the list. Again, we didn't get into specifics like specific assessments or things like that because it's supposed to be a more general list of things that as a behavior analyst, regardless of where you're working, these are the things that would improve what you're doing and you could do better with them. So I know there's a lot of lists we could make about all sorts of things, but yeah, that's what we decided to focus on for today. So Joe, do you have any closing remarks? No, I mean, this list, this list is definitely not all inclusive and it doesn't include everything that as a behavior analyst, we need to know or need to do better. And, um, there's probably a lot more things that we missed. Um, and there's probably more things after this podcast that I forget, or as you're, as you're driving, like our listeners are driving, they're like, well, what about this and this? And you're probably absolutely right that we need to be more versed in that, um, and learn more about, um, but <laughs> I think this goes back to being a lifelong learner and then, and then being aware of that you're never done learning and you're never done um, being a master at everything. There's no possible way. Right. (laughs) Very true. Well, thank you everyone for listening to today's episode. Go forth on your quest and do better. 